the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into hour three, we do so with Mr. Lewis Hallman. Lewis Hallman joins us usually with his father, Hugh Hallman, every Tuesday. But Hugh Hallman went to London to see the Queen. So we have Lewis Hallman uh, carrying the weight of both Hallmans. Lewis is the, among other things, managing director at Insight Analytics, LLC. Insight is I-N-C-I-T-E. Lewis, welcome. Tell the audience a little bit about what you do. You've done it before, but some people are curious and repetition is the essence of pedagogy. Certainly. So uh, I am a management consultant, effectively. Uh, I work uh, at my own firm, Insight Analytics, LLC, and I provide uh, analytic and financial consulting services to primarily small business owners. Um, The most common model I offer is either four or eight hours, weekly recurring retainer hours to do either custom analytic work, uh, budgeting, build work, um, what have you. Uh, really, if, if your business has numbers associated with it, uh, I have the ability to help make it better. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Well, good. Thank you for joining us uh, today uh, in um, in your father's absence. You're going to carry both loads today. And we thought, you know, we were just talking a little bit before the show. It might be good to explore something just a little beyond the daily uh, quotidian banausic politics of our of 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 of, of the goings on and. Go a little deeper today. People don't listen to this show to get dumber, and uh, that's why I love having guests like yourself on. And we thought, per your suggestion, that we talk a little bit political philosophy. Yeah, I, I, I would love that. And and specifically, not only um, you know as, as far as what political philosophy we, we we think should should take hold in the U.S. here, but I, I want to make this more personal, sure. even uh, because I I think that it's so easy to lose people when we're talking about really just sort of the the dry arcane goings on and workings and bringing it back to ourselves and what we believe and connecting it really to the story of our own humanity I think is how we we create a more compelling case so I kind of want to start this Seth if I may by asking you Mm -hmm. you know if if you had to pick anybody throughout history uh, it could be recent US could be ancient whatever who, who would you say is your favorite political thinker uh, biggest political influence, that, that, that kind of thing. Who, who left a mark on you and why? Sure. Uh, bifurcated answer. If we want to talk ancients, I love Aristotle. And I think uh, as my political philosophy professor who changed my whole worldview, Harry Jaffa, uh, once said, the, Nicomache- the Nicomachean Ethics is the most perfect book ever written. Uh, that's a large claim. Uh, the Bible, he says, is in its own category. It's a different kind of book, so he wouldn't put that in the same category. But amongst books not uh, authored by or claimed to be authored by um, a higher authority, as the old uh, hot dog commercial, Hebrew National commercial goes, um, Aristotle, I think, is is the clearest and most straight thinker. But in the modern world, in a way that makes it apprehensible or at least made it understandable to me and got me interested in the whole field and conservatism, Harry Jaffa, my teacher at Claremont, he was an Aristotle and Lincoln scholar, scholar on the founding. 
and he was a, one of a cadre of students of an even uh, more scholarly uh, professor named Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss was uh, an, uh, an immigrant from uh, Hitler's Germany who started off at the New School for Social Research, as so many did, like Johanna Arendt's and that whole I've read his work now. Yeah. You mentioned he, him previously. I, it just clicked. Rings. Okay. So then he moved over to the University of Chicago, and he created very many uh, famous political philosophers who lived amongst our time. I don't know if he has any direct students who are still alive, but Harry Jaffa would be one. <clears throat> very famously, Alan Bloom, the author of The Closing of the American Mind, who was a Rousseau scholar. Walter Burns, who was at Georgetown uh, for many, many years, and some others like that. Uh, but I would say Leo Strauss, um, who many claim resurrected and is responsible for resurrecting the serious study of the ancients in political philosophy in the modern era, with a view to read them, as he would say, as they understood themselves, rather than pouring into them the relativistic or the modern historiographic nature of what they we think they thought. I love that notion, yeah. Seth. Uh, Understanding I, them as they understood themselves was his was his famous line about that. that Sorry, th- th- no, that, that that ties into something that that I was even going to talk about Good. further as we get Good. more and more into this, and it's this notion that that morality to me has always seemed to be a technology mm-hmm. that we have to learn how to behave amongst ourselves and deal with the social institutions that we have as they develop. You know, uh, uh, the notion that um, uh, getting getting angry at the Romans, for instance, for for practicing slavery would be rather like getting angry at the Romans for not dropping an atomic bomb on Hannibal at Cani. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the it was an understanding of things that didn't exist. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I really think that that is a, a really profound distinction that I think is lost very much on on in a lot of modern political discourse because it's so easy to take you know the the common understanding that we have today look backwards and then very harshly and unfairly judge our our progenitors um i i did have one question yeah. though what why aristotle instead of plato great question um i think um with aristotle i agree with you i have my own yeah, answer i yeah, just want to hear yeah. yours yeah i i think plato raises a lot of great questions but um, and of course, one was the student of the other. Aristotle was the student of Plato. Um, but I think Aristotle makes things much more clear and direct. I think he's less inquisitive and uh, and more prescriptive. Is it, is it stylistic? It's also stylistic. So, so one one of the really I think inter- it's easier to read. One of the really interesting things about I think Aristotle's that, easy, my sense is that is that we we don't actually have Aristotle's original works the the nicomachean ethics right. and the politics as as we have them today are actually uh seem to be some version of like uh uh the professor's lecture notes really mm-hmm. that he would have have given mm-hmm. as he, he as he taught the the subjects in the athenaeum itself right. um and so i i always think it's really interesting that we have people uh uh who, who generally don't write like the Platonic dialectic style, but but for me the 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 reason that I've always liked Aristotle more than Plato is that Plato gets stuck on the on the notion of the the Platonic ideal, yes, this right. one singular notion of, of of the good. Whereas Aristotle, I think, is interested more in in sort of the golden mean, this notion of of, of compromise, prudence and moderacy. And and to right. me, I I think that you find a lot more a lot more of our of our 
greatest successes as a, as a species are these negotiated successes between groups rather than than you do as I say, winner take all, run the ideology one way. You know, th- that's how we see, you know, the horrors of the 20th century in Russia or in China and the like. You know, that, that kind of extremist thinking, I think that, that the, the platonic side can easily sort of lend itself to. Uh, love that answer. Without abandoning the notion, very controversial then and now, of Leo Strauss's interpretation of how we arrive at natural rights. Some things can be well let me i i pulled up knowing you were going to ask me this i i loved i loved this quote from one of his seminal books called natural right and history leo strauss wrote this is in the 50s in ordinary life we understand by a sane man one who knows what he is doing a man who knows why he is doing what he does if we cannot have any knowledge regarding the ultimate principles of our choices that is to say regarding their soundness or unsoundness we are in the position of men who are sane and sober when they are engaged in trivialities and gamble like madmen when confronted with serious issues, retail sanity and wholesale madness. In little things we may follow reason and our choices may be judicious. In the most important things we must be guided not by thought or light but by blind choice. If there is no natural right, everything a man can afford to dare will be permitted and nothing a man can afford to dare will be forbidden. The rejection of natural rights seems to lead to nihilism. Controversial in the extreme, but um, I, th- I thought you'd get a kick out of that nonetheless. No, no, it's a, it's a fascinating notion. It really is. Um, the the idea that well, well, well first of all, I I, I think that, that Strauss here is dealing with something that uh, a lot of uh, philosophers of his ilk in in prior centuries wouldn't have had to deal with. Correct. The, the idea that. Uh, of, of nihilism German, itself. German nihilism, right. Right, it, which is itself, it is a profoundly modern mm-hmm. uh, uh, concept. You know, it, it arises in response to the Industrial Revolution and, and is this, this yes. really very new thing. Um, but with Strauss, you, you, you see kind of the what, what I think is the classical counter to nihilism, that, that we, are, we are then able to forge our own uh, uh, meaning and that, that we then are able to uh, capture a a more useful state than than, than just if, if we were sitting there. Well, let's right. pick up on that because that is really the salvation of the West, as I understand it, that we're talking about in some respects. We'll go out with some pertinently Greek music. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman is my guest. I was just noticing as we were talking about Plato and Aristotle— I don't know if you can see the name on my telephone set. It's called Telos, <laughs> which, of course, was a huge principle of the natural, um, the natural, uh, the the important essence of a thing based on the end it is supposed to bring you to, uh, which is an Aristotelian notion. Aristotle's all around us. We just have to open our eyes. Absolutely. Anyway, go ahead, sir. We were talking a little bit about relativism. Well, so we we were talking about uh, uh, Leo Strauss, your your favorite. Uh, uh, political figure uh, after perhaps Aristotle, um, and and talking about w- one of the struggles that that he had to face that then is unique. So so this notion of the modern emergence of nihilism uh, uh, coming out of Germany at, towards the end of the nineteenth century, um, nihilism really emerges uh, uh, with Nietzsche and and, and Hegel. Um, 
proclaiming, particularly after the notion of the death of God. Um, this this idea comes from the fact that uh, uh, if, if if you read Nietzsche, at least the notion that the Enlightenment society that that had emerged before the Industrial Revolution um, almost collapses under its own self-inquiring weight. Right, that the, right. The challenge the, of the open society, we used to call it. It's, it's not only the challenge of the open society, but it's also sort of the the challenges of... Unassisted liberation? Uh, that, as well as scientific inquiry yeah. to more closed notions of uh, uh, religious dogma. So, you know, the, the, the Galileo case is perhaps the classical uh, notion of this, of, of the sort of the, the core of... Uh, sort sort of the anti-materialist thought that existed in the Catholic Church then for for hundreds of years. And as we see uh, uh, the 19th century progress with challenges from uh, Darwin, for instance, you know, we see Nietzsche, we see the birth of industrialized warfare, which itself was shocking to people. Um, There there are lots of accounts, for instance, uh, uh, about the loss of faith after the First World War, the the introduction of industrialized warfare, these types of things. Uh, And so... Now we're we're in a very a, a brave new world, if I can be a little cheeky, sure, sure. Uh, where conservative thinkers are reckoning with sort of the age old notions of of power and centralization yeah. and state control. But now we're we're and in tyranny. This, tyranny is a big word for this, group. right? Yeah. And, and, but now we're in this this notion where we have to deal with this crisis of meaning okay. as well, mm-hmm. and this this crisis uh, of atomization. I, I would describe. Um, there, there's a great book, Bowling Alone, right. that describes Putnam, a lot of Robert, the right, right, right. Uh, a, a number of sort of the the increasing social ills and atomization that 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 we've been seeing. Um, and I'm not. It, it's not obvious to me that we've developed a very good response to that. There, sure. there is some kind of baseline heuristics, you know, that that we kind of have against nihilism. That that if if nothing matters, then that gives you the ability to sort of choose what matters. Nietzsche talked about that itself, and, and that ultimately was not a very good solution for him because the ability to create an ethical system out of whole cloth is extremely challenging. Not many people could do that. And so, you know, we're, we're left at a point where I think we, we almost need to inoculate ourselves against this new existential dread that has come in. It's will without reason is how I would cheaply articulate the failure of Nietzsche if you will, um, the power of the will over the use of human reason, um, or at least the use of human reason for something beyond individual meaning, the quest for individual meaning. I think the individual quest for human meaning, uh, as you were putting it, yes, this was a great challenge, talked a lot about, you heard a lot of this talk, uh, the quest for meaning, the search for meaning, man's search for meaning. You heard a lot about this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it 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 turned out to me to be Lewis. It turned out to me to be a um, a never ending plunge into deep wells that you never got to the bottom of. Right. You know, th- this certainly opens itself to you know w- w- once you start playing these games and you start looking for for these kinds of of you know w- w- with the man search for meaning specifically. Yeah. Um, that that to me very much opens the door to this sort of postmodern critical yeah. analysis yeah. where. You know, we, we we sort of start breaking down the stories themselves into their constituent elements and yep. getting getting lost in the noise. What I actually think that that we need to do is perhaps almost take a more more ancient approach to things, yeah. where 
I, I think the way that, that humans relate to the world more than any, any other way, and I think that this has a lot to do with, with some of the, the political equilibriums of the country right now, is through story. Mm-hmm. That, that we need uh, to place ourselves within narrative. The, the, the way that, that language evolved was, was so that we could communicate story and agency to one another for exactly the, the, these reasons. And so you know, that there is this notion that we see, that we see ourselves as kind of the, the main character of our own movie, as right, it were. Right, right. And I, I think this is also part of the reason why um, political discourse gets very weird. Uh, you, you may have two sides that disagree on something, right? Uh, uh, take the left and the right. Um, but because we see ourselves as agents within a story, well, stories need antagonists. They need villains. And we, we, we recognize opposition to what we believe, I think, in those terms. And so it becomes very, very easy for us to... Uh, uh, in creating the story of our our movement, of our legacy, to tar the other side, because they aren't with us, they must be against us. And so there is this inherent, I think, villainization within us where we, we are very, very quick to to use those those sort of story-based mechanics to then tar the other side. And the reason I'm spending so long talking about stories in the context of nihilism is that I, I think many of the old stories that we had were were insufficient, okay. and that that's one of the reasons that that uh, in Nietzsche's language we killed God, and so I think part of the the challenge is coming up with a story for ourselves that is resilient and more robust to sort of the new modern influences, and I think that that's one of the big challenges that that conservatism needs to reckon with is this updating of ourselves. Keeping and honoring and and understanding and drawing the importance from our founding documents and our philosophies, but then understanding that there are new challenges as as we as we proceed. And and uh, at risk of prattling on too endlessly, the the example I would give here is the notion that if God were writing today, one of the Ten Commandments would very likely be, "Thou shalt not enrich uranium." There are new challenges and new new issues that our old wisdom is insufficient to address that I think we have to keep updating our stories but for. Would that, but would that not – and I need to ask you who yours were too, so don't let us yeah, lose yeah, that. Yeah, I know we have to do that as well. <laughs> let me come back on the uranium point and then merge that into your guys or, or gals. I don't know who your, your favorites are. But one of the fi- – fascinating things I I find about this search for meaning, this quest for meaning that became so so prominent for 60 years through today, I suppose the last 60, 70, 80 years, is that what we venerated was the search. Mm. And as long as someone said, well, I'm searching, they were to be honored and honorable. But if anyone ever said, well, I found it, um, if anyone ever... got to the telos got to the end if you will or ended up with god then then they were to be they were to be seen as infradig they were to be seen as separate and contemptible it's the search that i think is the problem with the search for meaning we never seem to want to get to the meaning and those who do seem to be dismiss or dismissible i'll let you respond to all of this when we come right back lewis and i'll be right back final solution is a nasty notion seth we don't want to be done Lewis Holman is my guest. Finding an end, as we were just finishing, as opposed to venerating or 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 making a um, a an art of the search. 
doesn't mean the end has to be bad. I mean, this was the whole quest, obviously, of um, of, of of Greek philosophy was to find uh, a good life, a good end, um, and 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 a certain eudaimonia and a certain kind of happiness. That someone attaches a final solution as one idea of an end um, is is of course. Uh, not descriptive of the entire reaching of an end. Um, I, I, I just we, meant to imply we look that— at, We can look at an American founding as an end. I, I, I just meant to imply that, that you know, to, to your point, that the solution yeah. is where is where the value comes yeah. to the point that you, you, you think that you're done, that you've come up with a solution, you're probably wrong, well, and that, that time will continue and invariably and in all likelihood. But, 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 it, to, but to say that happen. means you can't find truth. Well, to, uh, say, to argue that yeah, you so, can't so find an end means you can't have. That's a, truth. a fascinating notion in and of itself, and and we may have to derail my favorite philosopher. <laughs> so, do you want so, to get it out? Hold, hold on. So, right. so, so, no, no, I'm, I'm very interested in this notion. You, you can't, you're throwing you these bombs can... all over. We got to pursue them. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so, so to, to to your question, you know, do you think that you can find truth? And and I'm I'm not sure perfectly that you can. Certainly not all of the truth. There's so much information in the world that you couldn't possibly fit it all into your head. And even if if we're looking for the truth about a certain thing, you know, I I, I suppose it's possible. Um, could I know the truth of you, Seth? I, I don't think so. No, but you can know truly that I'm a human being. I, that I could know, but but, can, but there we go. So 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 there are limitations, it seems, on our ability to to discern. But you can know all the important things there are to know about me from that proposition, starting with the fact that I am a human being, which is how we started with this country, sure. right? From there, you can take all the important things and carry them forward, and then know that as a human being, I am entitled to certain. Um, certain rights, certain responsibilities, uh, certain what have you, right, certain but, forms of justice. But that yeah. doesn't mean I can treat you optimally or even even well. Tr- truth, you know, a, a knowing of full truth, does that imply sufficiency or optimality in some level? Well, I would say both. And, 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 and that's why I have a question about your thought that if we were rewriting the Bible or the Ten Commandments, uranium wouldn't be here. I'm not so sure about that because I assume you mean that in the sense of it being used to create a weapon of war. Correct. I don't know that those who believe in, let's say, the Jewish or Christian Bible or both, or either or both, I don't think either of them would say that war is not contemplated by God. It most right. certainly and, is. And yet thou shalt not kill is because within the is commandments itself. It's murder. Right. But 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 again... Um, not kill. That's important. No, I, uh, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's not obvious to me that... that and, and when I was making that, that point about the uranium... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the point I was trying to make is that there are there are new categories of issue, new categories of challenge that the ancients may not have had any idea that that dimension of society could exist. And mm-hmm. so so the, so the notion another so notion scale. I might so give you scale. would would be one in uh, in the twenty first century that I think is going to be very important: the idea notions of privacy, or perhaps even the right to be forgotten okay. on the internet. Okay. You know that uh, that that is a a wheelhouse of of sort of the the public sphere where where 
we don't really have we're not equipped as a society to make those judgments. We have to make them up as we go now, as we are unleashing the Internet upon ourselves. There was no way for Jefferson when writing to have successfully contemplated the issues that would arise with social media and the right to be forgotten. And so there is this notion where even though it, what he everything that he wrote may have been true, it was also incomplete. Well, sure. And everything you and I say by the same token today that we will agree on will be incomplete. Right. And, and, and that, I think, is what I, what I meant when I was years. talking about the limits of truth. You need to give me your philosophers. All right. All right and we'll do it when we come Well, let, let me, let me yeah, I'll, I'll give you, you the names. You I'll give you the, the teasers. Clock. Yeah, go ahead. So my, my favorite political figures in history are uh, a bit of a strange one. Uh, they are from Roman history towards the end of the Roman Republic. Uh, they were two tribunes of the plebs and brothers named Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. And the reason they are my favorites is because they so thoroughly upended the Roman political system uh, that 100 years later you can directly tie the, the rise of the empire to them. Uh, they... I think, give birth to our notion of modern populism and our fascinating, fascinating men. We'll pick up on that when we come right back. (laughs) My sweet Lord, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman, my guest. Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, Hallman, H-A-L-L-M-A-N of Insight Analytics. Doing a little bit of a different show. It's a different time of year, and we're contemplating big and deep things. And uh, a little bit of a seminar, a little intro to political philosophy here. You want to tell us a little bit more about the political philosophers or the philosophers, we should probably just call them, although you can correct me, that you have found most enlightening. So I, I, I don't know that it's entirely uh, fair, fair to call the Gracchi uh, philosophers. Uh, really, they were, they were politicians, I think, more than they were philosophers. But they're their activities were, were are fascinating for me and, and left a mark on me. And they ever lived since roughly. They they lived uh, in no. They they lived. Uh, uh, they were born. Tiberius was born in about 180 BCE, okay. uh, with uh, Gaius born around I think 170 BCE. Okay. okay. Uh, so, they they both uh, uh, were politically active during the the sort of the end of the Punic Wars, the conflicts with Carthage that Rome endured, right when Rome was moving from that era of uh, finally really conquering Italy and sort of, sort of taking its its place as a growing regional power moving into other parts of the Mediterranean basin. And so you see this, tra- it's part of while Rome is transitioning from this sort of small uh, uh, parochial power into sort of the, the mammoth that we know it from our, our history books. And the the Gracchi were both tribunes of the plebs. They were uh, uh, they were not senators. They were um, really uh, in power on behalf of uh, the common folk of Rome. So plebs being plebeians. Right. That's where we get the word plebeian from. Common. Yeah. And the 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 Gracchi really are famous for getting two pieces of of legislation moved through Roman society. The first was a large land reform bill that took a lot of the land that Rome had conquered in Italy that was state land, and they wanted to break it up and distribute it to the Roman citizens, the urban poor, so that they could be farm holders and also uh, uh, thus be eligible to join the Roman army. This then also had the consequence of uh, moving against some of these slave economies. As Rome had conquered around the Mediterranean basin, you saw the emergence of big, big slave plantations, which then caused a lot of suffering among the urban poor there. 
So the Garaki wanted to do this this land reform. They also then were responsible for getting the grain dole started, which was uh, uh, sort of the first large welfare program that we really know of in history. Grain dole, doling out grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And you see that as a feature in Roman politics all through the empire. Now, the reason that I these these two figures are interesting to me and controversial is not because they were successful, although they did get the land reform uh, passed and Julius Caesar and Marius ultimately in, in the coming decades really pushed that stuff through. They were interesting to me because they upended the total control of the Roman aristocracy over politics and they really started the sort of conflicts in the late Republic between the populares, the the common people, and the optimates, the old aristocratic uh, forces. And they so enraged the aristocracy that the aristocracy were compelled, both with Tiberius and then about 15 years later with Gaius, to kill the Gracchi and about two or three hundred of their supporters in the middle of the Roman Forum. Uh, in an area called the Pomerium, where weapons religiously could not be taken. Mm -hmm. And so they so upset the power base of their society by recognizing the the institutional failings of the Roman Republic and set it on a course ultimately where those could be corrected. That's why I, I, I admire them terribly, not because they succeeded ultimately, but because they had the courage and vision to be the first to take a broader, exurban core, the larger Roman uh, uh, base, as we would then start to know it, and take that group with an understanding of what it meant to be Roman, and then really upending this, the, the centralized aristocratic system that had uh, uh, sort of ossified around itself. What do you do with that today, and what do you do with that in the context of those commentators and analysts who say, looking at modern society, it is beginning to very much look like the end days of Rome? So the, the, the reason that I, I think that this is relevant is that we are in a, a world now, politically, where so much of our government has been centralized into a political elite, uh, reminiscent of those that the Gracchi opposed. And that much of our society, much of our political apparatus, with COVID, I think, being the most strident example, is not created for the betterment of our society, but for rent-seeking behavior so that that these politically connected people can pay themselves. And and to me, the Gracchi exemplify what the Republican Party should be about. It should be the coming together of the rural, the decentralized power blocks of American society, the clergy, the military, business uh, 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 people, uh, farmers, all of them together, building a voice and, and, and thinking about where society ought to go and, and what needs uh, uh, need to be addressed. Okay. Do you... Um do, do you divine from the from these uh, uh, politicians you called them politicians do you divine or derive from these politicians any form of that which would make one more liberal or that which would make one more conservative so the the things that, that they speak to um, are are not what re- they don't really map on to sort of modern notions of of liberalism and conservatism. 
in, in, in a way that we think of them a lot of the time. But they they do in the sense of, of the people that they're speaking to, this notion of the exurban uh, uh, poor, the Italian countryside in Rome, I think is very, very similar to our notion of flyover states today, for instance. And so the Gracchi, I think, are speaking to a lot of people in the same way that someone like Donald Trump might have been. Um, but but where I, I think that we should draw inspiration from the Gracchi is the ability to develop and think deeply about sort of the, the larger solutions and the ability to make our political enemies uh, mindlessly, breathlessly enraged, I think is a valuable one. Is, is, is what we have here in the little time we have left, is what we have here that you see as so analogous, is it recoverable or is it only leading towards destruction? So I, 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 I think we need a Grocky. I think that we have so many of the elements of, of sort of a, a successful pushback, a successful reorganization of the Republican Party here. Uh, I think that one is, is desperately needed uh, as we approach 2024. And it's going to be really interesting to see sort of what happens as a result of that. But I think we're coming to the point now where we're going to start to see a reshuffle of the parties and room for a a different type of conversation that I think is going to be and and should be if if we are wise not just about uh, pure conservatism for its own sake but then also taking the principles of conservatism and thinking about how the world will be different so the notion that I was talking about earlier about uh, 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 privacy yeah. or, or, or uranium, the, the new challenges that we face. How do we adapt our platform and our policy to be forward-looking let's and do, intelligent? Because let's, if you're good for this next week, let's pick up on those two very specific things. Let's talk privacy yeah. and let's talk uranium. I'd love to. Yeah. Let's pick up on this next week as we head toward the end of the year with deeper things. Lewis Holman, thank you, sir. My pleasure. Portions of this show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is based here locally in Phoenix, and they offer up a secure investment. It actually helps people. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi. It's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's got a ton of flexibility for you. You get a monthly statement with no surprises, peace of mind, and that there's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. Absolutely no fees, and you can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. This is a secure collateralized portfolio offered up by Y-Refi, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. 888-Y-REFI-24. I want to thank Lewis Hallman for doing this hour of political thought with us uh, reminds me of maybe a firing line at its best. Let me close out with a quote uh, from Leo Strauss uh, that might help describe not only the hour that we tried to give our audience, but what we will set up for next week as well. This is the close on his book asking, what is liberal education? And he writes, liberal education, which consists in the constant intercourse with the greatest minds, is a training in the highest form of modesty, not to say of humility. It is at the same time a training in boldness. It demands from us the complete break with the noise, the rush, the thoughtlessness, the cheapness of the vanity fair, of the intellectuals as well as of their enemies. 
It demands from us the boldness implied in the resolve to regard the accepted views as mere opinions or to regard the average opinions as extreme opinions, which are at least as likely to be wrong as the most strange or the least popular opinions. Liberal education is liberation from vulgarity. The Greeks had a beautiful word for, for vulgarity. They called it aperokaria, lack of experience in things beautiful. Liberal education supplies us with the experience in things beautiful. You don't get a lot of that today in education, but it does seem to me at its best that's what it should be, Lewis. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, and, and I think that we, we spend a lot of our time on goodness and truth, but we spend precious little of our time these days on beauty. Um, I, I find myself listening a lot to Sir Roderick uh, Scruton's work on, on aesthetics and architecture uh, increasingly and find myself continually inspired uh, by that. Uh, I, I hope that uh, maybe at some point we'll do a talk about architecture and how we move away from the hideous glass box model back to something more traditional and beautiful and serviceable for us. I would love that. Let's give a homework assignment out on a wonderful essay of Tom Wolfe's, the novelist Tom Wolfe's from 1987. You can find it online calling The Great Relearning. I think you'll all like that. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yes, sir. Until tomorrow, on behalf of Lewis and Mr. Bill and David Dahl and the rest, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.